uh, we're a part of a family of churches. Uh, there have been uh, three other churches that were birthed out of this church. And this morning, uh, the Restored Church Los Angeles uh, up in the valley is going to kick off their first public gathering like this uh, outdoors uh, in person. They've had a really hard time finding a space and a place. Fathers are, um, and also our brothers and sisters that Restored South Bay are getting together, Lord. I just pray that, that your presence would feel tangible. I pray that your spirit, who's already there, who's already working, God, that they would be aware of you. I pray, Lord, for those who maybe even would like trickle in randomly for kind of a unique gathering this morning, that they would see something of Jesus, that they would counter something of his grace through his people. I pray that you'd speak through Brad and in spite of him and through Danny and in spite of him and, and through me and in spite of me this morning, Lord, I pray um, that you would help all of our churches see Jesus clearly this morning. And I just pray, especially for Restored LA, that it, would, it really would feel special. It's not going to be, we know, meeting outdoors, they're in a parking lot, they don't even have grass. It's not um, this cool thing in and of itself, but what makes it special is it is your people. I pray they could see clearly. It's not about the, the, the frills or the add-ons. It's about your presence that manifests in a special way in the midst of your people that only happens through the church. It doesn't happen in an individual's life by themselves in the same way that it does through your gathered church. Scripture attests to over and over again. And so I pray for a sense of that as your church gathers in a special way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, so um, we are in Romans chapter 1. Um, I normally have an intro story to kind of hook you and make you feel comfortable, and the reality is, is today we're talking about God's wrath, okay? So I'm just going to dive in. I, I don't know any other way to do this. Uh, we're going to dive in and look at this, all right? So we're in the book of Romans, which unpacks the gospel of Jesus with precision. Um, in Romans, Paul works through the most important and most pressing questions ever considered by the human race with an insane attention to detail and a supreme level of logic showing us how the gospel is the only answer to the questions, our, our, our deepest questions and the only real solutions to our problems. Humanity is broken. I don't know if you've looked lately. This earth is broken. I don't know if you, and you don't just need the Bible. You, you just look online. You just look at a, anything online, really, but, but you read the news and you read your Bible and you can see it clearly. There is something wrong with us. And Paul's going to lay out with, again, precision, what is wrong with us, what the verdict is, and what we need. And his logic is so persuasive. I didn't realize this, but um, for over the first hundred years or so of Harvard Law School, they would make their students study the book of Romans, uh, not because they wanted them to become Christians, but because they wanted to see master, masterful logic laid out. How do you build a case that Paul doesn't just lay out a case, he even anticipates the questions you're going to ask to refute his case, and then beats you before you even ask. And um, a matter of fact, there was a, uh, there was a man, a black man born into slavery in 1845 in Alabama. His name was Charles Octavius Booth. Uh, he's one of the, the gems of the church that we have forgotten, I think because he was black. Uh, but he is a man who became a, uh, a preacher and a theologian. He wrote a book, a very helpful book uh, that's in print to this day called Plain Theology for Plain People. Um, it was for people who are mostly illiterate in the South, and, um, and he, would help to, he would help plant many gospel-centered churches. And before he was a preacher, and before he was a church planner, um, he worked at a law firm. 
And the reason he was able to work as a, uh, at a law firm as an ex-slave in Alabama was twofold. One, he could read, but two, he could read the book of Romans. And, and, and he talked about this idea that because Octavius understood Romans, he understood how to logically lay out a case because he learned his logic from the Apostle Paul. Now, just because he understood the logic of Romans didn't mean he was a believer. Um, working at the law firm, um, he would eventually put his faith in Jesus, which preceded his call to ministry. And um, Octavius working at the law firm, and, and one day he, he put his faith in Jesus, which obviously preceded his call to ministry, and he based it on the evidence um, of Romans. He, could not, he said, based on the evidence of Romans, I cannot deny that I was a sinner before a holy God. Now, here's how his conversion happened. He applied the logic of Paul that he had studied many times and applied it to himself and was like, oh, snap, this is a good case, and I'm on trial. All of humanity is on trial. All of humanity is in the need of saving. And so throughout the letter of the Romans, Paul starts um, with things most of us have observed in life. We know something's not the way it's supposed to. To be, it doesn't matter which world you is, your faith background, you know the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And the fact that you think there's a supposed to be proves you're not just a random accident. You know there is an ideal. You are homesick for something. And so Paul's logic throughout his letter is really persuasive, but what's the logic for? What's he trying to convince us of? And really it's this idea that only Jesus can solve the solutions to our problems. Jesus and what he has done for us in the gospel and so this week, again, he wants to answer that question, you know, why can Jesus and why did, why can Jesus and what Jesus did for us in the gospel alone restore us, heal us, save us? And to do that, he's going to have to show us our need. Again, only those who believe they are sick will seek treatment. Or, you, or as you can ask my wife, only those who believe they are truly lost will pull out Google Maps. And so today he's going to show us how sin sick and lost we are, how homesick we really are, how far astray we have moved. And to do that, we're going to get Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Okay, so verse 18. So here we go, Romans 1, 18. It says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so there's two things God's opposed to here in this text. They sound like kind of churchy religious words. Um, even fundamentalist words, but really they're simple. Um, godless and unrighteousness. Godless, they, 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 they deal with our brokenness in two categories. Godless is in our relationship to God. We have a fractured relationship to God. And unrighteousness is the brokenness. So there's the vertical relationship that's broken. Okay, that's godlessness. Unrighteousness is the, our fractured relationships with each other. The fact that for many of us, our families are not what we want them to be. Our friendships are never quite what we want them to be. And by the way, that's not just how they treat us. If we're honest, and many of us struggle with that, but if we're honest, we aren't who we want to be in our families. And we don't show up in our friendships the way that we want to show up. And so that's a picture of unrighteousness. It's instead of being loving, humble, and truthful in our relationships, we tend to be selfish, proud, and even manipulating. We seek to get what we want from people. That's the human condition. But it starts with a godlessness, this fractured relationship vertically leads to a, a, a bunch of, like a sad mosaic of bad relationships down here, you know, horizontally. And so God's wrath is against people who, um, uh, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth, right? So their sinful attitudes um, make them suppress or, or 
suppress or push down or bury the truth. Now, suppression, just so you know, it's not the same thing as ignorance. It's not, I had literally no idea. Often it's, I kind of had an idea and I wanted to bury it, right? It's how, it's how um, corruption exists in governments. It's how abuse gets covered up in governments and schools and even churches. It's, we, we kind of knew, but, but we wanted to suppress it for a reason. It's, it's, it's burying the, the bad lead. It's like you know it's there, but you refuse to look at it. Um, I, uh, uh, I didn't think I'd ever use this as an illustration, but, but I remember back when I was in high school, there was a song, an R&B song by a guy named Mario Winans called I Don't Want to Know. I don't know if you guys remember this song. Anybody? Okay, maybe, maybe just me. Yeah, me, Veronica, and David is the usual um, sitch. Which, again, by the way, if you'd have told me uh, I'd be using an early 2000s R&B reference in a sermon, I would have said, that's crazy, but, but here we are today, all right? And so the lyrics to the chorus went like this, okay? I don't want to know. If you're playing me, keep it on the low, because my heart can't take it anymore, all right? It's a song about the pain of being cheated on, right, by, by a partner, by a significant other. Now, the interesting thing about the song is, is he actually is laying out why he does know this girl is cheating on him. He's laying it out the entire time, but he keeps coming back to, I don't want to know. And he basically just doesn't want to look reality in the eye, right? That's what Mario's dealing with. I don't want to look at this. I don't, I don't want to know. I know, but I don't want to know, right? And this is true, actually, in many relationships where there's been infidelity. I've had to sit with couples. A lot of times, one spouse actually had an idea things weren't what they seemed like, but they really didn't want to dig and look until they just couldn't avoid the truth anymore. Oftentimes, we know, but we don't want to know. We don't want to stare reality in the face. Um, and that might be true uh, of our relationships with others. We, often, we really don't want to stare reality in the face when it's us in the mirror. Um, I'm in a uh, counseling cohort. As a lot of you guys know, I'm learning how to care for people better. Um, we're getting some phenomenal training with some um, really great licensed therapists uh, from Redeemer Counseling Center in New York City. And um, this past month, it was a sad deep dive into addictions, uh, substance addictions, and sex addictions. Okay? And, uh, and it was very, very, uh, it, it was heavy and it was intense. Um, but, but, but I remember there was this concept we, we dug into, this, this phrase just, I don't know, just, just, just pops to me. It said, self-deception is the cornerstone of addiction. Self-deception is the cornerstone of addiction. And if you've ever dealt with someone with deep addiction, you've seen some of this before. Self-deception where you say things like, I'm fine. I can stop when I want to. This isn't that bad. I deserve this. They wouldn't care right? And you see that, that, that as humanity, we know, but we don't want to know. We don't want to, to, to own it. And again, this might be, um, at, you know, at a, a very, at kind of a macro level in your own hearts. Uh, this might show up uh, at, a, at, a, at a larger level in your relationships, like I just mentioned. But this happens at a societal level, at a super macro level. As a society, we have done this with all kinds of areas. It's, it's, it's why many people have an absolute inability to acknowledge the deeply racist history of this country and its ongoing effects. I know, but I don't want to know. I'll give you another one. Um, our society's insistence that abortion is a health care issue. Saw an article two years ago, abortion was the, um, and it's and, uh, not just one article, there are many. Abortion was the leading cause of death two years ago, 42 million of them. They don't, by the way, they don't count as deaths in the way that we count deaths, but they are deaths. 42 million 
image bearers of gods who've had, who had their life cut way too short. It's not a small problem the way our culture and politicians talk about it. We know the value of life, right? That's why COVID's a big deal. It's not even touching a percent of this thing. By the way, some of my closest friends um, uh, had an abortion, and I'm not picking on anyone right now. I'm just saying that there is a brokenness here that, that we act like isn't there. And they would tell you it's a very broken thing. Uh, another one, um, our inability to take climate change seriously. Uh, no, one, no one wants to take it seriously. No ever, right? Like we kind of know, but we're not going to change our lives. We kind of know this probably isn't good, but I just don't want to think about it, okay? I don't want to um, uh, go through the sacrifices that that would require of me to deal with that. And, and we see that as a culture. By the way, I just give you a, like a liberal and a conservative talking, but they're both, show you, it's all of humanity does this. Another one, uh, uh, fast fashion. The fact that there are millions of people being worked practically to death so we can have the freshest new look every three months. There are millions of children being deprived of their education, working 10 to 18 hour days away from home and their families to make shirts that you buy at stores you shop at. Only 2% of the 100 million or so who work in the garment industry make a living wage. We call it fast fashion, but actually for them, it's painstakingly slow working a 16-hour day as a 10-year-old. Now, I'm not trying to uh, make you feel bad, but in a way, I, I am, because I want you to see we suppress the truth, right? With ourselves as a society and our relationships. Now, the reason we know but we don't want to know is it requires something of us to take seriously adultery or addiction or abortion or climate change or racism or child labor. It requires something of us. Paul's saying we suppress the truth because we don't want to deal with what we might find. Now, because the truth is hard to find, it's not because, by the way, that the truth is hard to find or that it's too complex to understand. Paul's going to make that really clear. We, we, we don't believe because we don't want to. Because truth has a responsibility that comes with it. It's uncomfortable. For example, the truth that there is a God who decides who is right and wrong, even if you don't like it. And that you may be accountable to such God. That's a truth we would like to suppress. I, I wonder if when Martin Lloyd-Jones preached Romans 1, he had this music going. This is a tricky one, guys. There's some fun music over there. There's some hard truth right here. Okay. Romans um, but, but Paul tells us why this is the case. Romans 1.19. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. So, so, so we, portray, uh, we suppress truth because of our unrighteousness. And the reason for that, uh, and, 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 um, and the reason we know that they're suppressing truth, the reason that um, we know that they're suppressing this truth about God is, is Paul goes, because they know there is a God. They, they are bearing the lead in their heart of hearts. Um, it, it is evident among them that God has revealed himself to all humans in two ways, inside of you and to you, in us and to us. Uh, the first one we're going to look at is uh, how he's revealed himself to us in a specific way, all right? Romans 1.20, it says, for his invisible attributes, 120, for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what has been made. As a result, people are without excuse. So to, uh, to us, creation declares to us the reality 
power, and glory of God. Creation reveals um, God to us, okay? Now, again, we know this. No one with any honesty, any intellectual honesty, looks at a Tesla and goes, that probably just occurred randomly. Um, everyone would assume there's a designer. Matter of fact, a plane's flying overhead. One author describes it this way, but here's one way to think of it. All science proceeds on the assumption that the inorganic cannot produce organic life. Yet if there is no personal creator, then life must have happened by chance. One scientist who is not a Christian said that organic life happening by accident as ridiculous and as improbable as a proposition that a tornado blowing through a junkyard would assemble a Boeing 747. Sir Fred Oyle uh, in the Intelligent Universe, he calculated that the chances of organic life happening are 1 in 10 to the power of 40,000. For organic life to spring, for organic life to spring from inorganic, 2,000 enzyme molecules would have to be formed simultaneously from 20 component amino acids on a single occasion. Now, many have argued that oil's numbers are too high, but all agree that it's only a chance of one in a million at best that life originated by accident without a personal creator. Yet many or most intellectuals base all their thinking and their eternal destiny on this slim chance. Now think, do rational people operate this way? It says, do rational people operate this way? Would you take all your earthly goods and possessions and bet them on a horse with a one in a million chance? And we're like, that's a sure thing, right? Even the gnarliest gambling addict, that's a tough one. One in a million. Again, great R&B song, Aaliyah. Uh, terrible betting odds. This is exactly, this author says, what Paul referred to when he says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, but their thinking became futile. To suppress the truth, they will engage in non-sequiturs and non-rational leaps. So again, the idea being it takes more faith to believe in that type of a origin story than the one that Scripture provides. You can call it superstitious and magical and silly, but it's like, what do you got? Um, by the way, I'm not going to go too deep into this. If you want to nerd out hard on the ways God has revealed himself uh, through creation, um, look up the cosmological arguments, um, the idea that we had to come from somewhere, even if there was a big bang, what caused the bang, etc. By the way, we're not an anti-evolution church. It's just theistic evolution, okay, that there is a designer, okay? It's not totally random. You can agree to disagree on how God created, but we go, there had to be a creator, even big bang. Who caused the bang? Where did it come from? And science, and if you go, man, I'm all science, it was all Big Bang, it just, it, it, you know, you're, you, God doesn't have a beginning in your worldview, but cool, where does your matter have a beginning? Again, it's a draw at best. Or if you really want to nerd out scientifically, look up the teleological argument, uh, tele, T-E-L-E-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L, uh, that deals with not only the, the cosmological question of why there is something rather than nothing, uh, but how our creation appears to be very finely tuned for a purpose, uh, the odds of these thousands of variables being on accident going to the, you know, beyond the billions um, is, is, is pretty wild. Again, that's not really, I don't love talking about that stuff. Uh, if, you want to talk, if you want to look at that, though, uh, you can check out Books or Debates on YouTube featuring people like William Lane Craig, Tim Keller, our personal fan favorite YouTube series, Brad Sarian. Okay, Brad Sarian's got a whole YouTube series questioning Christianity. It's good stuff, all right? So, so one, gay, one way God reveals us to himself is creation. Right? I have a ton of friends who have gone into uh, medicine. Ruth, who's leading worship here, she's a scientist for a living uh, who's playing piano and sing up here a second ago. And everyone I talk to that gets into medicine or science, when they're looking at the human body, they all tell me there's, it makes way more sense that there would be a designer or creator than that there isn't one. 
Yeah, we can disagree about how that creator created, uh, but to go it's totally random um, seems silly. Okay, so, so again, you can, you can dive into that on your own time. The second way God reveals himself to us, though, is inside of us. Inside of us. One is our desires. We have a desire and a longing for something just naturally. There's this desire for um, a God. Um, the second uh, thing, though, is the, the, the inward reality of, of our morality or our conscience. The fact that most of us deep down, though we like to, to play games, we, we do think that there's an objective morality. The very fact that we have moral feelings suggests the presence of a divine lawgiver. Where do we get this from? How do you decide what is right and wrong? Feelings of, of guilt and moral obligation, again, are common to people. And here's the other thing. They're not common to, to animals. We, we are distinct in that way. I've been on game drives in South Africa, and when lions, you know, are just chewing on a wildebeest or even just trying to kill each other, they're, they're fighting, like trying to bite each other's faces. Uh, they're not like, man, I shouldn't have done that. That wasn't cool. Matter of fact, the way that they uh, procreate is very, it, it would be considered assault if it was humans. Uh, it, it's, it's rough. Okay, I'm trying to get PG with the, the kids here. It's just different, right? Um, animals, uh, Jackie and I, I saw this, uh, Jackie and I were at Sunset Cliffs at sunset. Okay, uh, we're on a date night. We were there. Uh, There's probably 100 people there. It's about a year ago. All walks of life represented, okay? Um, there were Teslas and there were tore up Honda Civics. There were people in wheelchairs. There were old people. There were young people. There were Latin people, black people, white people, Asian people. There were couples, there were singles. There were people with great fashion sense, people with none. People with boat shoes on, people with Jordans on. You get the picture. They're all very, very different, but they were all doing the exact same thing. Wow. Appreciating beauty at the exact same time as the sun set. They're appreciating beauty. Now, while that was going on in the, the human kingdom, okay, there were, this is San Diego. There was a grip of dogs present. More dogs than I wanted there. It's a rumor that because I have a dog now, I'm a dog guy. No, I, I like my dog. It's a little. And I don't think it's a person, but I love him. There's a ton of dogs there. None of them, not, a, not to a dog or a lass or whatever, None of them are like this. They're all trying to kiss each other's butts. They're trying to eat stuff. They're disgusting to eat. They're trying to bite each other. They're, they're, they're playing in the dirt, literally. <laughs> We're different, man. We, we love, we appreciate beauty. We know that something is right or wrong. And again, without a God who created us in his image, which makes us worthy of dignity, love, and respect, both men and women, there are no such thing as human rights. I'm not trying to get rid of human rights, by the way. I'm just saying my worldview upholds them. A belief in a divine God who has a morality, who, who has a, a right or a wrong. And if you grab a, a, a you fully embrace a full-on natural selection, non-theistic evolution worldview where we are just animals then there isn't um, abuse or injustice in this world. It's a fabricated category. Is there abuse and injustice in the animal kingdom? 
there would be no need to right the wrongs of racism or misogyny because it's just the dominant eating the weak in a Darwinian worldview. There's no such thing, again, as, as justice or injustice. It's just one animal who was stronger and was, was, was tri uh, used trickery and strength to dominate another, and that domination shouldn't be sad. It should be applauded in a Darwinistic worldview. But we go, no, 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 it's wrong. There's something in us that sees this is wrong. This isn't okay. Human beings aren't meant to be chained up. Human beings aren't meant to be assaulted. Human beings aren't meant to be abused. Without a divine lawgiver, we wouldn't need to concern ourselves with the plights of the poor or the weak or the physically disabled. And by the way, in civilizations where there isn't a sense of a divine lawgiver, all those things are true. But why do we care about all those things? And I think it's because we're made in the image of God. We know that there is a right or a wrong. Deep down, we know there is a God. Verse 21 says, For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless. Paul is not charitable here. Their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Paul here is describing irreligion and idolatry. Irreligion and idolatry. And I know I've gone hard on irreligion this week. Next week we're going to look at idolatry and how fun that is. So when Paul is saying here, when he writes that they knew God, again, he isn't saying they have this deep relationship with God, a deep devotion um, or a close relationship to him. Again, don't forget Paul's whole argument here is the reason to suppress the truth is because they don't want to believe. Paul's arguing that, that most atheists aren't atheists because they're too smart to believe in something as silly as a personal God when you really look at the facts. Paul's arguing that most atheists are atheists because they don't want to believe. Matter of fact, one of the most surefire ways I know you're going to become a follower of Jesus is if you actually, with intellectual honesty, investigate the claims. That's the, like the, the fastest way to make it happen. As long as you go, oh, that's silly, and you just attack it uh, without examining it, um, yeah, sure, you won't become a follower of Jesus. Um, but, but for many, that's the reality. In other words, Paul is saying that when we reject something out of a confirmation bias, we are actually fools. We are not wise. Where a fool is not wise. When you look at all of what I just described in terms of creation and the order of the universe, and you come to the conclusion, it's, it's more likely that something that's in the chance of the billions makes more sense. That's not wisdom. Again, if you were to apply it to any other discipline. Again, we don't want there to be a God because we want to be God. We want to decide what is right and wrong. We want to take God's glory for ourselves. We want to be worshipped. We want people to celebrate us not him. We don't want to acknowledge that our talents, our brains, every bit of our energy is a gift from God, our able body, or even to acknowledge how much we owe, right, our success to the circumstances of our time. So we don't believe because we don't want to. We suppress the truth because we don't want there to be a God. And some are honest enough to say this. Thomas Nagel, a world-famous atheist philosopher, writes this, I want Again, it's not that it, this word, I want atheism to be true. That's a desire word. That's not an intellectual query word. 
I want atheism to be true and made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I do not want there to be one. So he's like when he sees uh, people like John Lennox, right, professor of mathematics at, at, at Oxford, or Francis Collins, right, uh, director of the G Human Genome Project, when he sees these brilliant scientists put their faith in Jesus, uh, he's like, man, that's tricky because I don't want there to be a God. Uh, there's this uh, guy named Steve Brown, and he's a pastor. He's been on TV a few times. He's old now. He's like in his 80s, but he's in his 80s now, but, he, but in the 80s. He's kind of at his prime in his 50s, kind of doing his thing, writing books, and he was on the Larry King live show once, and he said he, he was talking to Larry King, who's a, a secular Jew, and he was talking to him um, kind of on a commercial break or after, and he looked Larry King in the eyes, and Larry's like, I don't know about this stuff. And he's like, that's fine, man. Like, you don't have to believe so you don't want to, um, but, but it makes the most sense to me. Here's why. I said, um, Larry, real quick, if, if I could convince you without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, would you believe, in who, if, you, if, you, if you can know in your heart, right, that he, that he rose from the dead, would you follow him and give him your life and become his disciple? And Larry King very quick said, no, no. My money, sexuality, my time, my energy, my emotions, are you kidding me? That would be worship. <laughs> I don't want to give that to someone else. I want that for, for me. Again, very few are that honest, but that's what's beneath much irreligion. It's not just that the logics don't line up. It's, it's we don't want the logic to line up. So we can suppress the truth about religion uh, and say that there is no God, or we can suppress the truth through idolatry, which we'll talk about next week. Um, now, real quick, before we close, I do want to say this. Um, well, the truth that humans don't believe in God because we don't want to is true. I think that's consistent. And Scripture just taught it, so I, I think it's true. I know it's true. I believe it's true. I do want to talk to one group of people. I feel like while I was, while I was prepping this message, uh, there's one group of people that, that kind of um, were impressed upon my heart. Okay, and, and these are the group of people who stop believing because they've been hurt by people who claim to be followers of Jesus. They've been hurt by people who claim to be followers of Jesus, and then they stop believing. Now, what you need to know about that is, is the principle still is true. That's not a logical decision. I want you to see that. It's emotionally reasonable to me when I'm hurt I want to, when I'm hurt, I want to reject the people who have hurt me. And if the, the people who hurt me, um, if I can reject the thing that they say their entire life is all about, um, that's a great way to reject them. I might want to, to do that. But I want to say, if you're in that space or someone you love is in that space, abandoning Jesus won't heal the wounds inflicted on you by those who claimed to follow him. Christians are sinners. They will hurt you. We will hurt each other. But then there are other people who, who did atrocious things in an unrepentant way who clearly are not followers of Jesus according to what Jesus says about what it means to be his follower. And we have to let what he says about following him define what followership is, not what people have done as expressions of that. But, but, but either way, abandoning Jesus will not heal the wounds of those who claim to follow him uh, and inflicted on you. In fact, you'll be pushing yourself away from healing. 
Now, you may, you may need to find space from those specific believers. You might need to find a new church. You may need to dive in with a good Christian therapist, but please don't walk away from Jesus because his church didn't reflect him well. You need him, and he loves you. In our deepest pain, we'll be most tempted to change our theology. But actually, in our deepest pain, we're the least qualified to change our theology. So again, it's true, in those moments, we we wouldn't be believing because we don't want to. But it's pretty understandable why you don't want to. But I just want to say, as much as I do understand that, I'd love to talk to you and sit with you if that's been your story. Don't push Jesus away. I promise. No one else is safe like he is safe. I get you being suspicious of everyone but him. At some sense, because of what Roman says about humanity, we should all be suspicious of each other at some level. But you don't need to be suspicious of him. And he can handle your suspicion, by the way, if you're honest with him. So before we close, I do want to say this. I've just laid out part of Paul's argument for why we are not righteous before God. Aren't you glad he came to church this morning? Full of hope, full of faith, full of joy, full of peace. What I want you to see is he's laying that out to show you, which we're going to continue to get into, that there is a righteousness available apart from our performance, apart from the law. God has a way of cutting through our suppression in love. What we see in the gospel is that righteousness is not a standard he, he judges us by, but a gift that he gives to us. The gospel shows you that even though all of us alike have turned away from God, right, another night, right, we're all naughty by nature, right, 90s, 90s hip-hop reference. Though all of us have pushed him away in our own ways, but we've all done it consistently and willingly. The gospel shows us a God. Uh, the gospel showed us something about God, right? Creation um, has revealed, us, revealed to us something about God, that there is a God and we're accountable to him. The gospel reveals to us that there is a God who wants to make us right with him. The gospel shows us a faithful, pursuing father who wouldn't let us go even after we rejected him. We took our stuff and said, I'm going to do my own thing. Thanks for creating me and giving me these gifts. I'm going to reject you and walk away like the prodigal in Luke 15, that there is this father who keeps pursuing us. He keeps extending his arms out to us. He meets us in our brokenness and loves us out of it. He doesn't demand that we clean up ourselves or heal ourselves and then come in. He's like, no, you're sick. I came for the sick. But the good news is I'm a doctor and I love to heal. I'm a savior, and I love to forgive. Will you turn to me? One author writes this, we can know the power of God from creation and the justice of God from our consciences, but we can only know the love of God from the cross. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so I'm going to call the worship team up right now. I'm going to call the scientist It's true, according to this passage, we've, we've been God's enemies. But it's also true that God die, loves his enemies. Jesus died for his enemies to make us family, to make us friends, to reconcile us again. Again, the chasm was so big, only he could cover it, but he did cover it, friends, completely and fully. Um, for those of you who would describe yourselves as followers of Jesus this morning, I just want to ask you this. Will you have the courage to be honest with yourself? 
about what you believe and why. You don't have to agree with me, but can you be honest about what your motives are? Is there any confirmation bias as you look at the things your Christian friends talk about? Is there any part of you that wants it to not be right? You look for the crazy things some crazy preacher said that got put on CNN. So you go, see? Or Fox News, whatever. They have plenty of that on there too. Don't even, sometimes it feels like it's sarcasm. But you go, hey, I'm looking for a gotcha moment to, to, to get to reject this. They're so unreasonable. They're so ridiculous. They're so uncaring, Christians. There must not be a God I'm accountable to. Guys, that's bad logic. The question is, are, are you, is there a God? Is there a right or wrong? And if there is, are you right with him? Are you connected to him? Are you in relationship to him? Have you not just been forgiven by him, but, but do you know him personally and tangibly? Jesus came not to show us a way to God like every other religion. He brought God to us. He lived the life that you and I can never live. He died the death in our place that we deserve to die as unrighteous people. He dies in our place. He takes the penalty for, if this was court, right? He takes the penalty for our sin and offers us his righteousness, his innocence his reputation, his record, his bank account, whatever you want to call it, he gives us what is his and takes our sin upon himself. That is why the gospel is different from any other faith or religion or tradition in the world. It's not what we do for a God or the universe. It's what God has done for us. And you might not be ready to embrace that today, and that's okay, but will you, are you honest about the facts, the, the reasons why you will or won't explore? the truths of a creator and a redeemer. Um, for those of you guys who claim to be followers of Jesus, can, can you also be honest with yourself that you often suppress truth? That some of us live functionally like atheists, which is definitely worse than being a real atheist. But with our lives, we act like it's just us. We act like our actions only impact us. It's just about us and our life and our family and our story. That we're not accountable to him. That he's not worthy of our worship. Some of us live like we don't, like, like he's not worthy of worship. By the way, I do that too sometimes. We don't acknowledge him. We don't, don't obey him like we ought to. Where is he calling you to move from functional atheism to belief in Jesus? Because he is good, man. He is good. He forgives. He's real. Um, when we suppress the truth about ourselves, we actually miss out on experiencing grace. Because as long as I have a defense team that keeps me, as long as I have a suppression team, a PR team, as long as I can spin, spin my sin, a little rhyme there, as long as I do that, I can't experience the grace that's available to me. Until I admit I'm sick, I can't experience the healing. So I just want to pray for us this morning and ask the Spirit to take us where He wants us to go this morning. For some of you, it's putting your faith in Jesus for the first time. You're just not, I love to talk. Or you're like, I don't know, I thought I put my faith in Jesus, but I don't really know. Let's talk about it. We're all on a journey and a process. But I promise you, you do need Him, whether you feel that always or not. And I want to say that that's not bad news, it's good news because He wants to. Father, I, um, I admit that I don't worship you as I ought. I don't acknowledge you for who you are. Even as I stand up here, I can lose sight of what it is I'm talking about. 
I can lose sight of who's, on whose behalf I speak upon. As a, as a, as a preacher of the gospel, I'm, I'm proclaiming a message that's not my own, it's your message. And I'm called to do that, whether there's you know, music on both sides of me or planes, or you know, I, I can lose sight of what really matters. What really matters is a sovereign king is offering a pardon to a people. He is inviting men and women into his kingdom, whether it's, which is full of love and truth and joy and beauty and goodness. And I know I'm, if I'm the gospel preacher wrestling to, to remember and believe this gospel, then these beautiful men and women who are out here this morning wrestle with those same things. We lose sight of what's really true and what really matters and who, who we really worship. And so, Lord, would you pull us from idolatry this morning into worship? Would you pull us from irreligion and suppression into worship? And as we do that, would you continue to set our hearts free and continue the restoration project, which this letter to the Romans is all about, which, which everything you've done in Jesus is all about. Continue your name, we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand to, to worship our King?